Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. Uh, we are journeying through the Gospel of John. We're having a great time learning the lessons that Jesus would have for us, lessons that the church has been learning for thousands of years. And we have found that this passage and this book and the things that we're going through, even though they were written thousands of years ago, are still very relevant to us right now. Now, before we get to our passage this morning, I want to ask you this. I want to ask you, do you have any stories in your family that seem to get repeated over and over and over again? Maybe they're a funny story. Maybe it's an embarrassing story. What I'm thinking about is those stories that somehow kind of crystallize like a family lesson that the teller is hoping will pass on to the next Generation, Maybe it's just a, a moment, a lesson, something, a family principle that is encapsulated by this story. And it's told over and over and over again to teach a lesson. Now, let me give you one from my family. I heard this over and over again from my grandfather. My grandfather would talk about how when he would go to a restaurant, he would take uh, his daughters, he would take my mom and, and take my aunt, and he would, he would take them to a really nice restaurant, maybe a, a five-star steakhouse or, or a, a world-famous fish market. And every time he would take them to this just wonderful kind of culinary establishment, hoping they would enjoy just these magnificent tastes, my mom would always order a cheeseburger. A cheeseburger. No matter where they went, she would order a cheeseburger. Steakhouse, fish market, whatever it was. She would always ask, do you have a cheeseburger? Grandpa, or sorry, Dad, I want a cheeseburger. And my, my, my grandpa used to get so frustrated by this, not because he was against cheeseburgers, but because he thought my mom was settling. She, she, was, she was taking the mediocre instead of the magnificent. She was settling, and she was missing out on a better taste experience, in his opinion. Well, now that I'm a father, and I have four kids, and when I take my kids out to a restaurant, I could take my kids to a steakhouse. We could save up some money and do a really fun family dinner, and and my kids won't necessarily order a cheeseburger. All that does happen. Their kind of food of choice is chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. I could take my kids to a steakhouse, and they'll order chicken nuggets. I have chicken nuggets in the freezer. It's probably the same bag that they have at the restaurant. They just charge you 800% more to enjoy them in their seats. And so I get frustrated when my kids are missing out. They're settling for something. Yes, it's good, but we're in such a better place. Now, what if I told you we do this spiritually? We do this spiritually. We, we, we settle Sometimes We settle many times. We find ourselves at times spiritually starving because what we're eating is spiritual scraps. We're, we're settling for a second best. We're settling for maybe stuff that is good, but it's not great. Well, we're eating cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets when we're in a steakhouse. And I think what we're going to find in our passage this morning is Jesus is going to be before a crowd who is hungry. I would say they're spiritually starving. They're, they're looking, they're anxious for some sense of spiritual fulfillment. And what we will find is that Jesus is trying to present to them, guys, I'm right here. Here's what you're looking for. You're at a steakhouse, man. I can offer you something that nobody else can. I can eternally satisfy your soul. And yet what they ask for 
is cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets. They ask for good things, and they miss out on the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. And they settle. Let me, let me show you this in our passage in John chapter 6. And I think we could kind of summarize Jesus' teaching with our big idea for this morning. We like to have one big idea in any message uh, that we give on a Sunday morning. And so this is the big idea for this morning. Spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. Spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. When you think of starvation, you think this is a food problem, right? There's not enough food. You don't think of it as a hunger problem. But this is what Jesus will say. Jesus will say that the problem is not supply. The problem is not the menu. The problem is not that there is not spiritually satisfying food out there for you. The problem is you don't hunger for it. It's not a menu problem. It's an appetite problem. You're still ordering off the kids' menu, the cheeseburger and the chicken nuggets. But you're missing the main course. You're missing the chef's special, if you will. You're missing what is the most satisfying thing for you. Let me show you how Jesus points this out, how their spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. Let's start John chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 47. Verse 47, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, this is Jesus' point here, his main point here, and he's going to use a a metaphor to explain this point. What we see right there in the first verse of our passage this morning, Jesus' point is, if you believe in me, you will gain eternal life. Think of, if you believe in me, if you order off the menu here, if you believe in me, what you will gain, what you'll be satisfied with is is eternal life. If you trust in me, in my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin, then you will be spiritually satisfied forever. You will have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am the solution to the sin problem, to the thing that's infected everyone and is affecting everyone, the thing that is causing everybody to starve spiritually. I'm here to solve this problem. I'm here to meet this need. Now, Jesus is going to kind of teach that small principle of believing for eternal life. He's going to use a metaphor. He's going to use a food metaphor. Look at the next verse. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Now this is a perfect time for Jesus to use this kind of metaphor. Why? Not because it's lunchtime. It's because Jesus has just done a miracle in feeding thousands of people with the kids sack lunch. We've been talking about this miracle over the last several weeks. How Jesus, looking at a crowd of 5,000 men, so probably 20,000 people approximately, Jesus feeds all of them miraculously. When there was no place for him to get food, he miraculously provided food for everybody to be satisfied and for them to actually have leftovers. So Jesus picks the perfect time to use a food metaphor. He had just done a perfect picture of his provision, and now he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now look at what he's going to compare himself to. And this is how we know Jesus is kind of building this contrast that I kind of built for you in the beginning of cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets at a steakhouse. That Jesus is going to say, you have hungered for certain things. 
You have been given certain things, but now you're off the kid's menu. You're, you're off the kid's menu. It's time to order from the adult menu. Put away the crayons and the nice little connect the dots. Throw that away. It's time to order the chef's special, the thing that will truly satisfy. And so Jesus is going to set up this contrast between something good, not bad, but something good and something great. Between God's provision of physical needs and God's provision for our deepest spiritual need in Jesus Christ. Look at how he does this setup. Jesus says, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is where Jesus starts the contrast. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Is, is he speaking about a bad thing here? No, he's speaking about a good thing. This is God's provision. In the Old Testament, when God's people were just kind of coming of age as a nation, they, they had grown under their Egyptian oppressors to be a large people. And God wanted his people to be in his promised land, a, a land that he promised to their ancestors. And so he wanted to bring them to this land, and he wanted to dwell with them in that land. But they were in the land of the Egyptians, and they were oppressed. They were a people under slavery. And so a great leader by the name of Moses comes, and he leads their deliverance. And he moves them out of Egyptian slavery through the wilderness and toward the promised land. But during this wilderness journey after Egypt, before the promised land, in the middle here, they're starving. They're hungry. They're in great need, and there are millions of them. And so God miraculously rains down manna, or bread, from heaven. Is Jesus talking about a bad thing here? No. Jesus is talking about a good thing. If God had not come in and rescued them at that moment, provided bread for them miraculously from heaven, they would have starved to death. So God prolonged their life. He met their physical need. That is a good thing. But look at how Jesus sets it up. Jesus says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Now, this would be no shock to his Jewish readers here, or to his Jewish listeners here. Of course they know that they died, but Jesus is presenting this as a problem. He's saying this was good, and it served its purpose. This meal allowed them to have another day. But it did not extend their days into eternity. This is when Jesus, before these hearers, is going to say, move your eyes off the kids' menu. Move away from the cheeseburgers and the chicken nuggets. Let me show you what I have to offer for you. This is good bread, but it had a bad ending. I'm going to give you better bread, and that better bread is going to give you a better ending. Jesus says this, verse 49. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying there's a new bread that has come from heaven. Not the manna and the bread that your ancestors ate in the wilderness that came down from heaven, but a new bread has come down from heaven. And eating this bread will grant you eternal life. You will never die. Now Jesus knows 
He knows what his audience is looking for. They're seeing this miracle of Jesus, and they're likening it to what happened to their ancestors in the wilderness. And they cannot fix their eyes away from that kind of provision. Again, it's a good thing, but it's the kid's menu. But they're using this miracle under the leadership of Moses, which was a good thing, and they're using it as a measuring stick against Jesus. Let me just show you this. If you move back a little bit to verse 30, it says this, And they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What works do you perform? Verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, Jesus has already provided his miracle. Now they're taking that miracle with Moses, and they're saying, ooh, that's great. Our fathers experienced that, but what other sign do you do? You see, what they're saying is they've, they've received this miracle. They see this good thing. They see this provision, and they say, okay, great. Can you do better? Can you offer better? Can you give us more? What does this show us? They are starving. They are hungry for something. And Jesus very much wants to give them more. He doesn't want want to just to provide bread to fill their bellies. He doesn't want to just prolong their days with a meal. He wants to give them a gift that will allow them to never die. But here's the hard part. Jesus can't sell them on the adult menu. He can't get them to look over here. It's right there before him, and he can't get them to see that God has provided for them in himself, in the Son, in Jesus Christ. There's a bread here for them, a bread that will allow them not to die, a bread that is unlike what their fathers experienced in the wilderness. Let's continue reading as Jesus continues to explain. Verse 51, I am the living bread, He focuses their mind to show, I am the bread that is given here. It's not just something to fill your bellies. No, I, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So now Jesus is said kind of in the negative and the positive. If you eat of this bread, which is me, you will not die and you will live forever. Yes, it's really kind of the same thing, just kind of two sides of the coin, one negative, one positive. You are not going to die, and you're going to live forever if you'll eat of this bread. So Jesus is saying, lift your eyes and see that God has given a greater provision than just a meal. God has given you, or is trying to give you and offer you the gift of eternal life. Now, how is this bread prepared? Right? Bread came from heaven last time, miraculously just came into existence, but that's not how this bread of life has been prepared for them. Look at how Jesus kind of ends up this section here. Halfway through verse 51, he says, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, and Jesus said that it is himself, but listen to this, we get a fuller picture of what he means by how Jesus will give himself as the bread of life to these hearers. He says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's a lot in here. For the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus saying? That phrase there, for the life of the world. That preposition on itself, for, 
When it's used in this gospel, in the fourth gospel, in the gospel of John, it's used often in a sacrificial context, meaning this is sacrificed for this. This dies for this to live. And that is exactly how John is using it here. I will give myself as a sacrifice for the life of the world. And what will Jesus give that the world may live? He says, it is my flesh. My flesh. John said in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh, that God became flesh. We call this the incarnation. God the Son became a man. He took on flesh. And in taking on flesh, now he will give of his flesh. How do you give of your flesh? Jesus is talking about his crucifixion here. He's talking about his death here. He says this bread of life is baked in brutality. Right? It, it's, it's, it's cooked in the cross. It doesn't miraculously fall out of heaven. No. It's men that will crucify this bread. I will give my life. I will die at the hands of men. And I will be crushed under the wrath of God. But... A bread will be baked in that process that will give life to the world. Now the Jews, they don't understand this. They can't comprehend this. We saw a very similar pattern last week. That they'll show some unbelief or some confusion, and then Jesus will really say the same point he's already said in the first part. He'll say again, but he'll even turn up the volume. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. Again, Jesus is staring at this crowd who he believes he has appraised to be spiritually starving. They're hungry. They're they're, they're anxious for fulfillment. They're looking for something. They've even received Jesus' miracles. I mean, think of that. They're not skeptical. They're not agnostic about this, right? They're they're, they're not uh, doubters about this. They receive the miracle of Jesus in his miraculous provision of feeding thousands of people with a sack lunch. They see the good that Jesus has to give them. They, they reckon it and recall it. And remind them, it reminds them of the good bread given to their fathers in the wilderness. But Jesus can't get them away from the good to see the great. To see that he is the bread of life provided for them that they may live forever. Right. Look at their unbelief. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this be true? This is very, a very similar pattern that we've seen when Jesus kind of speaks with these metaphors that he likes to use. Uh, we saw it when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus would tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, uh, you need to be born again. Jesus, again, is speaking metaphorically there. He's speaking figuratively there. But Nicodemus responds with, wait a second, if I have to be born again, do I have to enter again into my mother's womb? He's he's reading Jesus' words over literally. Uh, The same thing happens to the woman at the well. Jesus comes and says, I want to give you living water, water that's going to spring up in you to eternal life. And, Jesus, and the woman says, man, this is great. How do I get this water? Can you give me this water? Because I don't want to go back to this well again. Again, she's not seeing what Jesus is saying. She's totally missing it. And these guys are missing it too. 
They're taking Jesus' word over literally. What do you mean you're going to give of your, your flesh? I, I, don't, I don't think that, that they think that Jesus is talking about like cannibalism here. You know, that Jesus is saying, you must eat my flesh. And, and, and here you go. I'm the first meal. Like, let's do cannibalism. Let's eat other human beings, right? And I'll be the first course. I don't think, I don't think that that's how they're reading this. But I think they're bewildered. Like, they don't understand how this all works. And see, they know that Jesus is speaking figuratively, but they still can't figure out what does this metaphor mean? They're, they're kind of repulsed at kind of how maybe vulgar Jesus' language is about, about flesh, and, and so they feel like, this doesn't make sense to us. How your bread, your giving of your flesh, are we to eat you? How are you going to give us your flesh? And when I, lo- I love what Jesus does here. Because Jesus doesn't turn down the volume. Right? They're kind of repulsed by Jesus' description of giving his flesh and it being bread to them. And Jesus is not going to change his language to accommodate for their distaste of his metaphor. Jesus is just going to heighten it. He's just going to turn it up. He's going to add several phrases that basically show the same point. Your spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. The food right there is before you. You're at the steakhouse, but you keep ordering cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets. And so Jesus is going to kind of push the menu before them and say, don't you, don't you see? Here is the chef's special order this. It's what you're looking for. Right? Look at how Jesus gives even more emphasis to his point that he is the bread of life and the one that will truly satisfy him. Look at verse 52. Sorry, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Wow! What does Jesus do? Jesus now says, not only am I giving my flesh, you got to eat my flesh, and you got to drink my blood. Wow! I mean, that's pretty vulgar, or, or, or at least repulsive language. Jesus said, you have to thoroughly consume me, is what he's saying. Uh, look at another phrase that he used, another word that he adds on here. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now this is another word in verse 54, that word feeds on. It's a much stronger word than just eating, right? Jesus used that that word before that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And now he's saying you must feed on it. So Jesus, again, has turned up the volume here that that term feed on means to, to chew in such a way to cause an audible noise, like a, a crunch or something like that. The word is used in Matthew chapter, I believe it's 24, to speak of the enjoyment at this banquet as they're eating. They're, so they're, they're eating and they're enjoying. You could think of it like when you, 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 you're at a meal with somebody and they're really enjoying their food and every bite you can hear them chewing and even them saying like, mmm, this is good. What is Jesus expressing here? In kind of very odd language, very strange language, Jesus is saying, you must thoroughly consume this bread of life. You have to enjoy it, ingest it into your innermost being. You've got to take me and all of me 
All of me. You got to fully trust in me, fully believe in me. And this is what Jesus means by this metaphor of eating and drinking. Even though it's kind of a strange language, Jesus is speaking of belief here. That was the first point he made in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus is using this metaphor to kind of explain what belief is. It's consuming me and it thoroughly taking me in in your innermost being. Now, Jesus adds another word to this that I think is very significant. Go back to verse 33, or another kind of phrase. Verse 53 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He uses the term Son of Man. This is what he adds. Again, this is kind of Jesus repeating himself again. But now he's adding new terminology. He's used different verbs. He's saying eating, drinking, feeding on, chewing, enjoying, and fully ingesting. Now he uses the term Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite terms, if not his favorite term, to speak of himself. He gives himself this title. Now he's, he's already used this title before in the Gospel of John. In, in John chapter 3, in verse 14... It says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus is talking about the same thing, how belief will lead to eternal life. But now he switched up the kind of metaphor, if you will. And the metaphor is in direct connection to Moses again. Here, the, the metaphor of eating Right? Of, of drinking, it, it, it's pointing back to what happened to God's provision in the wilderness when God provided manna under the leadership of Moses to the people. Now Jesus uses the title Son of Man, and that brings the reader back to John chapter 3 to another occasion in the, under the leadership of Moses. Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole. Now why did he do that? He did that by God's instruction because the people of God sinned against God. They sinned against him in distrust. They threw away his commands. And so God sent serpents to bite them, a plague, if you will, a plague of judgment. But God had mercy on his people, and he showed them his mercy. And he said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and when people look at that, they will be freed from this plague. They will be saved. It's kind of an odd kind of story in the Old Testament. But it, it, with the cross coming much later, hundreds of years later, it makes a lot of sense why God would do that very thing in Exodus. Something will be lifted up, and you must look at that for your salvation. This is exactly what will happen to the Son. He will be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And we must look to him for our salvation. Now Jesus is taking kind of two Old Testament ideas. And he's saying these are good things here. The provision of manna in the wilderness, that was a good thing. The bronze serpent lifted up to free you from a plague. That was a good thing. But better has come. Better has come. The bread of life has come. 
And this will do more than just fill your bellies. This will feed your souls forever. Oh, it was great to be freed from the plague of a serpent, but you have a greater enemy, a greater serpent who is out there, who will use sin to destroy you, who is your master and is seeking to keep you captive under your sin, to fall under the judgment of God. His name is Satan. And yet Christ was lifted up to crush that serpent, to take away that plague, to destroy our greatest enemy. He's saying, this is good, but look at great. Look at better. Don't you see how satisfying this bread is? And now he's going to unpack this. He can't seem to shake their gaze away from these Old Testament good ideas. So he's going to continue to illustrate what happens when you eat this bread. What happens when you trust in Jesus Christ and you believe in him? He unpacks what eternal life is. Look at verse 54 again. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Very interesting here. He says that they will have eternal life, and they will be raised up on the last day. You know, oftentimes, the hope of Christianity is uh, confused or at least short-changed. Here's what I mean by that. We see a phrase like eternal life, and it's almost like we think the Christian hope is just this eternal existence. And we sometimes package it as it's a very pleasant afterlife. Right? So you have life now, then death, and you have the afterlife. And that afterlife goes on forever. But that, that is selling the Christian hope short. The, the Christian hope is not a pleasant afterlife. It's resurrection life after the afterlife. It's not just life after death, but life that passes through death. Notice what Jesus says. You're going to have eternal life in that second phrase, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, you will have life, and then you will have death. But I will resurrect you, resurrect you out of death. You will have an afterlife. That's true. You will die, and you will be disembodied. Your spirit will be in heaven. You'll be with the Lord. You'll be with him. But that's not the end. That's not where it ends. You will be resurrected, reunited with your body, and then God, in a sense, will resurrect all of creation. And he will throw the heavens and earth together, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, a, a resurrected creation that now we will exist in, in body and spirit. So the Christian hope is not life after death, but life after at the afterlife. Life after the death and afterlife. It's life that passes through death. This is what Jesus says he has to offer them. I will offer you resurrected life for all of eternity. But this is not just a later thing. Let's keep reading, because he's not just speaking about a future hope or a, a, an experience so far down away from them. He also says this is life, this eternal life is now, not just later, but now. It is right now, and you can have 
communion with God. You can have a life with God now, him abiding in you and you abiding in him. Look at how he describes this. Again, verse 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There is communion together. Now he's going to kind of switch terms here, but I think he's talking about the same thing. I think he's talking about communion again. Jesus said, I am in you and you are in me. There's this communion, this this spiritual intimacy between Jesus and those that believe in him. Now he's going to switch the term and he's going to use the term life. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. He also will live because of me. Now what we don't want to do is we don't want to read that verse 57 and think the term live or life is talking about creation, meaning the starting of existence. It's not a good way to read this passage. I don't think what it's speaking about here is creation, the initial work of existence. I think it's speaking about that intimate communion. That in the scriptures, life isn't necessarily contrasted with non-living. Life is more living under the blessed design of God and having intimate communion with him. It's life with God. That's life. And to be a part of from God, to be away from his blessed rule and reign, is to enter a place of death. But that place of death is not non-existence. So you can see how the vocabulary that we have normally in English could lead us to read this passage and say, wait, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, we could almost read and say, whoa, does that mean that Jesus has a creation? It says he lives because of the Father. Did Jesus have a time when he not, er, did not exist? Was Jesus brought into creation? No, that doesn't work for the Gospel of John. We saw this in the very beginning verses where, where it was said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among them, but it also said the Word was with God and the Word was God, that Jesus never had a beginning. The Word never had a beginning. Jesus is not talking about you will start to begin. Think about how nonsensical that would be if you read the rest of the passage and think about it's talking about creation. The starting of existence. It says, so forever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. What is he talking about there? He will also live because of me. Is Jesus speaking that, well, people who aren't yet created will now be created? Clearly not. Jesus is speaking about what? He's speak, well, he's speaking first to people who are already alive. Their heart's already beating. Their brain is already working. Their lungs are filling. They're living beings. They are alive. The life he has to offer them is communion with God. This is what Jesus is offering. He's saying, I will abide in you, and you will abide in me. And the living Father, who I live with, who I have communion with, who, who I have a relationship with, you will now be in that relationship. You will be with us in wonderful communion. This is, this is what eternal life is. It's a now and later. It's a now, a, a wonderful, perfect, unbroken intimacy with God. 
And that intimacy will only grow throughout your life and it'll climax in a moment at the resurrection where you will enjoy God in his new creation and there will be no more hindrance anymore to your communion with him. This is what Jesus has to offer. Now look at how he closes off this section. Right? I like to call it an Oreo construction. Right? It's called, if you want to get really grammatical about it, it's called an inclusio. Right? But I like to call it an Oreo construction because I think that just makes me happy to think of a cookie as opposed to some random Latin phrase or something like that that inserted its way into the English vocabulary. An Oreo construction is this. There's chocolate, just like an Oreo, and then chocolate, and then the middle is vanilla. And here's what he's going to do again. He's already kind of give us the chocolate. He's saying, look, I'm better than the manna that your fathers had in the wilderness. And then he explains all of what he is as the bread of life. That's kind of the middle part. And then he closes it off again with basically the same statement he already said in the very beginning of our passage. Look at how he wraps it up with a comparison again to the bread that the fathers ate in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Verse 40, sorry, 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the father. The fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. forever. See what Jesus is doing again? Pressing forward that point. Your spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. You keep looking for this provision of a physical meal. You keep looking for these good things. They're good things. They're from God. But you're missing the great gift that God wants to give you. You're missing the bread of life that will allow you to live forever, that can give you communion with God now and can stretch that all the way past and through death. You're missing it. You're starving. You're starving and you think it's a menu problem. It's not a menu problem. It's an appetite problem. It's a, it's a hunger problem. I think Jesus is feeling the same way that my grandfather felt, the same way that I feel when I take my kids to a restaurant, the same way my grandpa felt when he would take my mom to a restaurant. Sitting at a steakhouse, and the kid can only order a cheeseburger, chicken nuggets. Settling for good things, but missing out on, on great things. Now, what, is this, what does this mean for us? What does this truth mean for us? That spiritual starvation is a hunger problem. That we're missing the bread of life that truly satisfies I think what this means for us, that as followers of Jesus Christ, when we're talking about our faith to our friends and our family members, we need to be very careful at what we're offering. We need to be very careful about the menu that we're pushing toward them. Here's what I mean by that. If we are offering on the menu that Jesus is the way to an easy life. That Jesus is the way to a comfortable life. If Jesus is the way to their best life right now, then what we're offering them is the kids' menu. 
if we try to convince them that Jesus is here to give them a comfortable, easy life right now, then we're asking them to settle. Now, I know that sounds strange. What do you mean, settle? An easy life, a comfortable life, your best life now, that sounds pretty great. That sounds pretty great if you don't zoom out and see that mankind has an eternal existence. That the lion's share of our existence is not on this earth, but it's after we leave this earth. So to only put forward what Jesus can do for you now in this temporal life is basically to give them the kids' menu, throw them some crayons, and tell them to entertain themselves for a moment. And we have to be very careful about what we offer them in Christianity. If we offer them and say, you know what, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you great finances. God's going to give you a great marriage. God is going to give you great kids. God is going to give you wealth and health and comfort and ease and all of these things. And God may give them that. He may. But we can't, can't guarantee that he will. The only thing we can guarantee that God will give them is God will give them eternal life if they believe. God will take care of their eternal existence. And here's what happens. If we only offer them the kids' menu, if we only offer them the things that God may give them as temporal blessings in this life, what happens when they get sick? What happens when they lose their job? What happens when they lose their house? What happens when they bury their kids? You know what happens? They're going to hate God, and they're going to hate you because you sold them a bad religion. We got to be careful what we offer when we think about asking our friends and family members to follow Jesus. We got to show them that God wants to give them the bread of life and not a baguette. That God wants to give them eternal life and not an easy life. That God wants to give them eternal communion with Him and not easy comforts for now. We've got to show them, you're in a steakhouse, man. And Jesus offers you eternal life. And that will satisfy you forever. That'll satisfy you in the hardships of life, in the tragedies of this life, in this temporal existence on this planet. To eat that meal, you could be satisfied even if you're physically starving. If you eat the bread of life, you could be satisfied even when you're suffering. If you eat the bread of life, you can feel as though you have everything when you have nothing. That's what we need to sell them. That's what we need to offer them. Now, now if you're not yet a Christian, you're, you're still exploring the things of Jesus, you're still curious about Jesus, you're still looking into Jesus... I want to thank you for, for honoring us with, with, with the uh, opportunity to speak into your spiritual journey. I, I really do. I want you to know that I, I, I went to church for months 
uh, 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 years probably before I ever became a Christian because I just had questions and I was just curious. And that, and if that's you, I want to speak directly to you because I think there's something for you to learn in this passage too. And, and that's this: be careful what you're ordering. If, if, if as a as a Christian, a follower of Christ, we need to be careful what we offer. I think if you're still curious about Jesus and you haven't yet crossed that line, you need to be careful what you're ordering. Here's what I mean by that. You need to be careful of what you expect Jesus will give you if you follow him. I think sometimes people get disappointed with Jesus. And I think they get disappointed with Jesus because they have the wrong expectations of Jesus. Is what they expect of Jesus is Jesus to give them something that he was never really intending to give them. Right? We don't, we don't want to order something off the menu that the chef is not preparing, right? Look at this very sobering passage. This is in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Listen to this. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, whether the other is yet a great way away or off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now, Jesus is using strong language here. Jesus is using, using hyperbolic language here. He, he is using exaggeration, but he's still making a point. Jesus' exhortation here, his command here is not, I need you to hate a bunch of people, right? That wouldn't work. Jesus would say that we're supposed to love God first and love others. That includes everybody he listed there. He's not saying go hate. What Jesus is saying is, I got to be number one. I got to be number one. So much so, I have to be number one, that if you lose everything else in following me, it's worth it. It's worth it. That's what he's saying. Jesus is telling this crowd who's who's coming to him, hey, before you come, know what this may cost you. You could lose everything. You could lose your most close and intimate relationships. They may be gone. You need to count the cost. Just as the builder counted the cost before he built and the king counted the cost before he went to war. Jesus is saying, before you come to me, realize what this may cost you. Now, how could Jesus make a statement like that? Here's how. Jesus was confident that the relationship he was offering was just that satisfying. That even if everything was taken away, if all you had was Jesus, you'd be satisfied. You're soul would not hunger for any more. You'd be fully satisfied in the bread of life, in communion with God that stretches 
past death into eternity. You have to know, if you're not yet following Jesus, and you step over that line, and you start to follow Jesus, you may lose some things. Now, I think following Jesus costs some people more than it costs others. I've seen that in my own experience. You can see that in the scriptures as well. So I can't tell you what it will cost you, but I can tell you this, I think with great guarantee, just as Jesus would tell you, whatever it costs you, it's worth it. It's worth it. Even if it's the prized thing of your life, it's worth it. Because the bread of life is just that satisfying. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Christ, that you are the bread of life. You are what satisfies. That we are starving, and we are hungry, and we are tired of eating spiritual scraps. We hunger for more. We long for more. And you are what we long for. It is in you, Christ, that we can have forgiveness of our sin. It's in you, Christ, that all of our regrets, all of our shame can be taken away. It's in you, Christ, that we can have a hope for eternity. We can have a hope that doesn't just give us a pleasant afterlife, but a hope that stretches beyond that, that gives us life after the afterlife, that gives us a life that passes through death, that gives us resurrection life and communion with our Creator forever. We are so satisfied in you. Everything were to be lost, and all we had was you, Jesus. We would be satisfied. Father, I pray for those that haven't yet committed their lives to following you. Oh, Father, I pray you'd show them right now just how satisfying your Son is. Remove the blinders on their eyes and let them see, maybe for the first time, how anything and everything that Jesus would call us to push aside is worth it if we gain him. Father, we thank you for this truth and we pray that it will sink into our hearts for the remainder of this week until we gather again. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.